This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. There are two main types of investing, active and passive. Active investing is typically for people who have a deep understanding of the investments they're working with. They're trying to time the market by buying an investment when it's low and growing it to the point where it's grown enough to achieve whatever profit goals they set. Then they sell that product for a profit. The classic buy low, sell high strategy. You have to be paying attention to what's going on in the world and be ready for quick movement to avoid losses. There are people who are very good at this, but it's highly risky and not for everyone. Passive investment is when you buy something and hold onto it. You pay attention as it grows over the years and you control your overall risk by keeping your investments balanced based on the amount of risk you're willing to accept. A typical passive investment is an exchange-traded fund or index fund. Passive investment can be done through robo-advisors automatically. They take care of the risk management for a small fee. Or you can open a brokerage account and do it yourself. Typically, passive investors fall into these two categories. Either you just want to keep it simple and live your life, so you pay a robo-advisor half a percent and they take care of everything. Or you decide you want control over your investments and also want to try to save money on fees and do it all yourself. Usually, this type of person enjoys monitoring their investments and taking a hands-on role, at least on a semi-regular basis. But what if you fall somewhere in the middle? You don't want to spend a lot of time on your investments, but you also want to have full control and try to minimize your fees. Brendan Wood and Brendan Lee Young fall into this category. They wanted to invest their own money, but realized there were so many tedious tasks that still have to be done manually through their online brokerage. So they created a tool to automate all the manual stuff, a kind of Swiss army knife for do-it-yourself investors. Both Brendans join me from the province of New Brunswick to share their personal finance stories and talk about their new portfolio management tool, Passive. Poor, relatively poor. Growing up, my mother would always tell me the importance of saving at least one third of my salary or in this case, allowance so that I can use it to pay for education or or buy that Nintendo 64 that I want, right? Yeah, yeah. So she'd, she'd always encourage me to save my, my allowance. And I'd like to say that I always listened to her, but I, I did not. So I always found more useful things to do with my money, like buy clothes or, or, or go to the movies. So while it's always been reinforced uh, to me that saving is very important, I can't say that I did a good job up until when I... F- started going to university. And so when I started university, all of those lessons that my mother would be teaching me about sort of came back front of mind because I'd have to budget more effectively in terms of how much money I'm going to spend this week. I probably should not go to the bar. And so being an international student is what really reminded me of some of these previous lessons that my mother would have shared with me growing up. And and before that, uh, when your when your mom was like, uh, "Do this, do that," you're like, "Forget it, mom. I'm going to spend my money." <laughs> well, I, I basically, I, I, yeah, you could say so. <laughs> Jeez, I sound like a bad kid, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you when when you're ten or twelve years old, 
you know, you're, you're not thinking long term. You're thinking about that golden eye game that just came out and you want to play with your friends. And Exactly. Well, but what kind of money did you even have at that time? Man, I, I would have had the equivalent to maybe a hundred, a hundred Canadian dollars that, that, that took me six months to save up. But like I said, I'd, I'd be saving to get, get to that number to buy, let's say golden eye, but I'd always get maybe halfway there and spend it on, on something else. Like the circus would come to town or, or there'd be a really cool movie that I wanted to see. And so I'd, I'd, I'd spend it. <laughs> So typical kid stuff, but the stuff that your mom taught you just kind of stayed in you somewhere. And when you got to university and realized maybe you're running, are we running off savings or a student loan? Yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I was running off of savings at that point. And um, it, it's really, really challenging when you see your bank account and every month it just goes down gradually knowing that nothing is coming back in. Believe me, I know the feeling. <laughs> So that, that's my experience. Um, university helped me. Fortunately, when I noticed that my money was shrinking, I looked for creative ways to, to top some of those funds back up. And so I got into DJing and, and promoting parties in, on campus there. And so that saved me. And it actually put a bit more money into my accounts than I would have thought. So it, it worked out, but there's there's nothing more than psychologically watching your money go down. And then you start to question your expenses and, you know, could I be saving more and should I be buying this? And is it good to, to be drinking or going out to the bar every week? Then you start thinking about those sort of questions. And that was sort of my journey with money as I, as I grew up. And that extended into my adult life. And, you know, now I have a, a full-time job. And so I, I've brought those principles with me as I grew up now. And, and so you watching your savings go down, you saw, I need to do something about this. And you were like, like I have uh, DJ skills and you started the side hustle. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically I, when I calculated the, the time it would take me to let's say work a, a bare minimum, well, like a basic job that paid 10 bucks an hour to go on Facebook and create an event and invite three or 400 friends and a 10, $10 a head, you know, you'd, you'd make a lot more compared to spending 20 hours a week at $10 an hour. So I not only looked to limit how much my cash was being burnt on a monthly basis, but also I, I looked for ways to optimize the amount of money I would make based on the time that I spent. And so just because I had some DJ skills and, you know, I knew how to talk to, to people on campus and make friends, it, it genuinely paid out. Um, being a Trinidadian, people always want to party with Trinidadians and Trinidadians love to party. So I, I found a win-win. Yeah, sounds like a win-win. So, okay, both of your names are Brendan. Yeah, so, not to confuse you or anything. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, so I was talking to Brendan, and what, what should we call you? Brendan, what's the last name? I'm Brendan Lee Young, and you can call Brendan... I'm Brendan Wood. Okay, so I'll just, I'll say, can I just say Brendan Lee and Brendan Wood to make it easy? Sure, go for yeah, it. it. works for me. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so that was Brendan Lee, and now Brendan Wood. What's your... Uh, early money memory? So I grew up in, in St. John's. And I, I guess uh, if you'd ask my family about it, they would they would probably tell you that I have a bit of a reputation for thinking about money a lot, especially as, when I was a kid. I mean, I never had gobs of it, but when I would get it, I would just, rather than, you know, burning it quickly, I always had this inclination to squirrel it away and save it and use it for something really special at some point. And, and who and who taught you this? Or was this, is this in your genes? Uh, you know, I imagine my parents had something to do with it. They were both, you know, very frugal individuals. 
but I, you know, it was early enough that I don't really recall. I mean, my mother tells this story about um, this particular family reunion or something that we went to when I was probably six or eight years old. And I, I have no recollection of this, but you know, when I was there, I, I found some other kid and I wanted some, I, I wanted to spend some money on a, a treat or something. And I found this kid who I apparently had lent money to at some point in the past and was like, Hey, I'm going to call on that loan now. And he gave me, you know, a few dollars back and I used that to go buy a treat. And it just completely blew away everyone around me that A, I had done that and B, I remembered enough. And then C, the kid actually also remembered and and paid back. <laughs> That's kind of insane at, at such an early age. So you just like, would you just make sure you had people all over town that you could you collect money from? I, don't <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean... I, <laughs> I don't think I explicitly did that. Um, you know, people would just be like, "Hey, can I borrow some lunch money?" And sure, I'll give you some lunch money. And then, you know, a month or two later, I might say, "Hey, I want a chocolate bar. Can you hook me up?" Right. So, and maybe- you just had it all in your head, or did you keep a book? No, I didn't have a book. It must have all been in my head. So you you started out. You were like an early loan shark, but you I didn't so, you yeah. didn't charge I, I them really high interest rates. Or yeah. Anything. Okay. <laughs> but but what if somebody was there anyone who didn't pay you back? Oh yeah, lots of people who didn't pay me back. Hmm. I've got I've got a short list of names who never paid me back from high school, and they're <laughs> and they're not getting any favors today, right? No, well, I, I'm not even in touch with most of them, so it's all good. That's not r- like, that's right. Large amounts of money, it's like five bucks here, ten bucks there, right? Yeah, but you but you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I don't know why I know. I don't know why it matters, but I know. <laughs> and they'll and they'll be like, "Why didn't I get that promotion?" And they they'll have no idea. Pay your debts. That's the lesson here. Pay your debts no matter how small. Actually, pay the smallest ones first because they're easy, right? I mean, we could talk about different methods of debt repayment, but that's another podcast completely. <laughs> so then, so you're squirreling all your money away and you're getting through high school doing this too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I actually, I always tried to have like some kind of like side income, um, even when I was a kid. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I started this little uh, little business in my in my school where I was selling these uh, rice balls. So you basically, uh, they were kind of like stress relievers, but made with rice and they had, you know, balloons and stockings around them and stuff. So they felt really cool. They looked cool. They were pretty simple to make, but nobody else really knew how to make them except me. So I made a couple and brought them to class one day. And some of my friends were like, oh, that, that's really cool. Can I can I have one of those? Or can you have, show me how to make it? It's like, yes, in fact, I can make one for you for a small fee. And so I started making these things and they got really popular and I was taking custom orders. I probably made a few hundred dollars off it. And then uh, some other kids caught on and realized that they were missing out on this grand opportunity of, you know, making money off of uh, 12-year-olds. So they started making their own uh, cheap knockoff versions of my stress relievers and eventually got it, got it banned by the school. And that kind of shut down the whole thing. Well, they ruined it for you. They did. You had this ni- <laughs> nice niche thing going on and uh, you had the idea. It's kind of like Apple and Microsoft. Would you, would you compare yourself to Apple? Uh, as 12 years old? Yeah, sure. We can go with that. <laughs> well, you know, that's pretty awesome. Not everybody thinks of ways to make uh, that kind of cash when they're 12 years old. But uh, did so did it just go from there? Did you keep coming up with ideas or was that a one-off thing? Uh, you know, like, it wasn't like I, I always had something going on. But if I, if I kind of stumbled across something that was interesting and I enjoyed doing, I would do it. Uh, when I was in high school and uh, Later in university, I used to do tutoring to kind of bring in a little bit of extra money and help pay the bills. The one that I found worked the best was doing group sessions. So, you know, one-on-one tutoring is fine, but it's just kind of like a big hassle for the amount of money you make, you know, like you need to get 
people interested in, in being tutored and then you need to, they're going to hire you and then they probably want to meet you first and sometimes you're going to meet their parents and then you decide on a rate and then you book a meeting and then you meet with them for an hour and then maybe you have $15, you know? So it's like a lot of work for a relatively small amount of money. Okay. But um, I found that uh, doing group things is a lot better. So in, in university, I used to run these review sessions for courses that I had uh, previously done and charge people five bucks a pop to come for the midterm or final review. You know, it's a relatively small amount of money per head, but when you get 50 or 100 people in the room, it's it worked out really well to pay my rent for the month. That's a great idea. Like you get everybody in it just for the one time, uh, but yeah. it's something that's valuable to everyone, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, and, you know, it's kind of like, it's not like you could do it every day. It's definitely opportunistic. You can only do it, you know, like one, not once or twice, but maybe like four or five times a semester. You know, it's definitely a nice little boost that kept me going and helped cover tuition costs and stuff. So you guys met at university then? No, no. We, <laughs> we actually met at a friend's diaper party last year. Okay. So, so you guys, you went, both went through university. And uh, so Brendan Lee, you, you stayed in New Brunswick. Yeah, so I came to Canada thinking that I'd only be gone from Trinidad and Tobago for one year. Um, so I said, no big deal. Spent the first year studying, and once I was done, I decided I wanted to stay here. And so I, I've, I've been in Canada for almost 10 years now, and I would have met Brendan last year. So even though we were in the same town, um, our paths never crossed up until last year. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. Sorry, I skipped over this, and I'm not sure why. What is a diaper party? I'll let you take that one, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you've got a new baby on the way, yes. You know, it's kind. It's kind of like a baby shower. You know, sure. Um, that it's often. I mean, I guess it happens more frequently for men. I guess so. Women will have the baby shower. Men will have a diaper party or something like that. I see. And, it sounds you know, gross. Sort of it sounds like a gross party, but it's it's yeah. these are unused diapers, I hope. Absolutely unused, yeah. But just, you know, everyone comes and they bring a pack of diapers and then, you know, the, the new parents end up with enough diapers to last them for a few months, hopefully. That's pretty great. That's a great idea, actually. And uh, then and everybody knows what to bring and you're, you're not bringing, uh, you know, here's a shirt that they can wear in three years. You're bringing something people can use right now. Exactly. Yeah. Smart. So you guys had a mutual friend then. Yeah. And you don't have to name them. And uh, <laughs> we'll keep them anonymous unless you really need to plug them for some reason. Give them some diapers. They need more diapers probably, right? <laughs> well, well, actually, I think they, they, that, that was for their last kid. I don't think they have any anymore. Okay. <laughs> but perhaps that there is a blog post on um, diaper parties and, and how you can save money by having your friends buy diapers because they're apparently really expensive. Yeah, it definitely. It, uh, this is a future blog post, and uh, I'm I'm making notes right now. So the <laughs> you guys meet and you start talking about your mutual interests, and uh, so what what are you both doing uh, for a living at this point for right, money? So I work for a uh, small company called Priceonomics. Um, so we're a startup company, and we do content marketing services. So we have you know, a web platform that does analytics for blogs. And then we also have like higher end services. That's uh, like full service content marketing campaigns. So that's my, my full-time job. I'm a software developer there and it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it, but I've also kind of like had this entrepreneurial spirit for a long time. So, you know, I used to work for another uh, startup company here in Fredericton, um, Radiant six. Um, and I've kind of always, I'm always kind of interested in the next big thing. And so that's, that's why that's kind of like the circles I find myself running in and uh, the people I tend to hang out with are, you know, people who kind of think the same sort of way. And Brendan was there and I, you know, never met him before and we just started chatting it up and 
lo and behold, he has a degree in entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, he's super interested in the startup space. And so we just started, uh, you know, talking to each other about thoughts and ideas we have and all that stuff. It just so happens, Bo, that Brendan's idea for Passive was, you know, in relation to, you know, helping Canadians save more for retirement. And, you know, I, I had a background, in, a limited background in investing because I, I took a course at a university called Value Investing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I found it very interesting because I, I thought that I could use the stock market to make money. And it stems from another story in my days because I... I used to gamble in my early 20s and one day I woke up and I realized, well, geez, like that doesn't make sense. If you want to save more money, maybe invest in the stock market. So anyway, I took this course. What, one of the interesting things in this course was that instead of, instead of actively trying to beat the market, you can buy a low cost index fund and get the market returns. And that really resonated with me. And so when Brendan and I got chatting and he, he told me about this idea he had and what he was doing, I jumped at it because I, I, I fully believe in, you know, just buying the markets and not trying to, you know, actively manage your money to beat the market. So uh, it was, I think I would say it's, it was sort of fated at that point. Well, I found it really interesting that you're able to learn some of this in school. I, I mean, it, I have a general business degree and I had some finance courses, but we talked mostly about derivatives and uh, a high level stuff like if you're going to be a trader or something like that and it would just all seemed way over my head uh, you know for a, a, in a personal finance sense sounds like you had a little bit more of a personal finance angle yeah i i took personal financial planning back in trinidad and nice. uh, i like the idea of investing but not investing other people's money just investing on my own because i think it's important and all the books out there sort of tell people that if you want to make money you you got to learn to invest your money wisely and what better way to invest your money wisely than buying the best companies in the world and and holding them for a very long time yeah i think you're right just a little little uh, tiny piece of each one right so that if one of them goes down you're not uh, uh, stuck in the gutter so brendan wood how did you uh, get into like how did you learn about investing or or where did you start putting your money when you were, were making it at first? So when I got my first job, I started by paying down the, the debt that I had. I had some small, um, uh, like a student line of credit that had to be paid off. And then uh, the company had uh, RRSP contribution matching. And so I put a little bit of money in there. That's smart. So 100% what, uh, of what, 5% of your salary? Uh, yeah, I think it was about 5%. Whatever. I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't making huge money or anything either, right? So, like, it kind of it started adding up slowly, though. But, but we should we should take a take a moment and uh, just make sure everyone knows that that's it's the best investment you can make because you're immediately getting a hundred percent return on your investment, no matter Absolutely. how well the actual investments do. Yep, that's right. They double your money um, if they have this uh, contribution matching thing. So it's a really sweet deal to take advantage of. Yeah. So that's that's our PSA on uh, uh, <laughs> employer matching. Please do it. Okay, now uh, now back to you. <laughs> Basically, I was just kind of putting my money away in there. And I guess the thing is, like, I, I'm a software developer, and there's not a lot of, uh, like, unionization or pension schemes uh, that are available to software developers these days. Like, maybe if you're working mm. for, like, a, a great big old company, they might have something that'll suit you. Or if you're working for the government, general private sector tech companies, uh, you don't tend to see a lot of that, right? Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, so even with, uh, you know, contribution matching on your RSP, it's still, like, They'll match your contribution. You still need to decide what to do with it. You haven't just like handed it off to a pension manager to take care of it. 
So you need to think about what your risk tolerance is. You need to think about your target retirement date. And, you know, the, the default places where the, um, they let you put your money as a part of these plans are often with uh, relatively high fee mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't particularly educated on the time. So I, I kind of, uh, I looked at the fees that I was, I was paying. And I was like, well, you know, 1.5%, 2%, that's not so much, right? It's a pretty small amount. You know, when you think about that amount compounding over time and like being taken away every year, it really kind of adds up. So eventually I did the math on it and was just shocked to see uh, how much of my savings were going to disappear to these management fees. So you decided to do something about it. Yeah. You decided exactly. to to learn more about investing on your own? That's right. Yeah. So um, it was probably uh, Reddit's personal finance community that got me into it originally. Um, so they're pretty big proponents of uh, passive investing and index investing and that sort of stuff. So I think it was uh, the Canadian Couch Potato blog that I eventually found my way to and, you know, read through all the theory behind it and why this works. And, I, you know, I was really sold. on. I was like, really, you know, if I just do this myself in my own brokerage account, I can end up saving a lot of money over the course of my career. Yeah, it's uh, Dan Bordelotti, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah he's really put it uh, together over the years to you know give people easy ways to get started. I mean, I, I think the easiest option that he has is just go and get a tangerine index fund. If you're not sure what to do, here's your easy start. Just start, right? Yeah. So I, I considered doing some of the simpler options where, um, you know, they have, you know, mutual funds or, or whatever that have very low fees and you can kind of put your money into or the TDE series. And I guess I decided like that, that's kind of like a nice place to be, but I, I wanted to do the full thing at some point. So I figured why not just, you know, go hundred percent, open a brokerage account and get started. So I started doing that and uh, very quickly discovered that it's really tedious. Like <laughs> I had three different accounts. So I had like, you know, an RSP, a tax-free savings account and an RESP for the kids. I had monthly contributions going into each of them. And then there were dividends coming in every now and then. And with the RESP, there are these government top-ups that come in maybe, you know, three or four weeks after you make a contribution. And so with all these different transactions happening, uh, that money needs to be allocated and there's no like kind of notification system to tell you when the money's available or when trades um, are able to be made, right? So I just found myself, uh, you know, spending way too much time just clicking refresh and waiting for the money to hit. And then when it did hit, you got to run the calculations to decide uh, where to put your money such that it keeps you as close to your target as possible. And like none of it is really difficult to do. It's just tedious. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of, tedi- of tedious tasks. You know, as a software developer, I take it as my personal mission in life to destroy tedious things. You got to automate. Exactly. So I found out that my uh, brokerage, uh, which is Questrade, had an API. And I thought, well, you know, I've built software against APIs before. Let's give this a try. And so uh, really the first version of Passive was uh, a simple Python script, probably about, I don't know, 50 lines of code that I would just run every month. And it would uh, basically connect to my brokerage account and it would read my assets and it would compare it to a target portfolio and, and basically tell me what trades I should make in order to keep myself as close to that target as possible. Let's, let's take a couple of steps back there. So not yeah. everyone knows what an API is. Can you explain that? Right. Uh, so API is a, it's an acronym for uh, application program interface. That sounds about right. Yeah. So the basically, yeah, the idea is that... Um, with these APIs, they provide a way for developers outside of an organization to write code that interacts with the organization. So um, if I wanted to you know, write some custom code to automate a certain portion of my portfolio, I could write software that talks to this API. So there's uh, you know, an authentication procedure where you know, the, the brokerage will validate that you are who you say you are and that you've authorized this access. 
Um, and then it gives you access to certain things like I can read the balances of each of my accounts and I can read the holdings of my accounts and I can look at my trade history and all those different things. So they, they basically provided you a way in to their, I guess it's software for request trade. So you're able to use your software skills to get in there and integrate and then make something of your own with, which oh, you said Python, which is a programming language as well. Yep, exactly. And so you, you built, what did you build at first? What, uh, what was the first iteration? Was it called passive at the time? Was like a, a, like a little tiny script. It was just like, it was just a few lines of code that basically would take this, this flat authorization token and send it along to Questrade to say, Hey, this is me. Let me in and give me access to my account. And then I would read my assets and then uh, look at the prices of the current holdings on the market and compare it to what my target portfolio is. And then just do the calculation of what I would need to do in order to get back and, you know, as close to that target as possible. So it was super simple. It was like on the order of 50 lines of code. Uh, it took me a weekend to write or even less than that. And it was just, you know, it, it worked for me and it, it helped a lot. And that was the first version. And I actually never had any plans to kind of expand upon it because it worked for me. It did what it, what it needed to do and it wasn't going to change, you know, um, until I showed it some friends and they were, they said, well, this is actually really cool. I think I might be able to use this. Is there some way I can use your code? I'm like, yeah, sure. You can just, here's the code. You can just run it yourself. Right. And, you know, eyes glaze over people who don't write software, you know, yeah, probably no. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, obviously that wasn't a good solution for, for most of the people who were interested. So I said, oh, you know, I'll spend a few more weeks at it and I'll just kind of throw up a very simple web interface and uh, uh, take it from there. Did that and it's just kind of like compounded. And, you know, the more people I show, the more people have been interested in helping out and uh, using it for themselves. And so now, you know, now it's like, you know, we're in a place where we're getting lots of feature requests. And so we're having to like prioritize, well, should we do this? And if we are going to do it, how do we do it? And, uh, you know, which one comes first, that sort of thing. And so let's, let's just uh, pause uh, and talk a little bit about the importance of allocation and why and, and being able to reallocate. So let's just say you're starting out and you're going to buy a couple of index funds or, or exchange traded funds. You're making yourself a portfolio. Maybe give us an example portfolio. And then what, what you would do when it all kind of grows out of balance. Sure. Okay. So um, to give you an example, I use the Canadian couch potato assertive portfolio, I think. Um, so that basically says you put 50% of your assets in uh, global equity. So like global stocks, Okay. 25% of your assets in Canadian stocks, and you put another 25 of your assets in Canadian bonds. Okay. So that's like a, a kind of like, it's a fairly balanced approach. But forget the United States, they're maybe part of the global one, but... Yeah, exactly. Pro yeah. Probably a lot of the global portion ends up in the United States just okay. because they're so huge. So it's like you, you're getting a little exposure uh, to risk, uh, global risk. You're staying just a, a quarter in Canadian and then, then the other quarter in bonds because bonds are a more of a, a conservative investment and they usually go the other way when stocks uh, go down. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's basically like a, a hedge on a couple sides, right? So like, first of all, it's you've diversified uh, by buying index funds all over the world and in different markets, right? And then you've got half your assets outside of Canada, half your assets inside Canada. And then within your assets inside Canada, half of those are in very conservative bonds, uh, which like you said, kind of tend to do the opposite of stocks. And so it kind of like will average out the effects and um, try to take the edge off of really sharp swings in the market. Okay. So you got, you got 50 and 25 and 25 and then I don't know, uh, a year goes by or six months? When, when, when do people typically rebalance uh, their portfolios? So it really depends. Um, I, 
from what I understand, you shouldn't be rebalancing more than like maybe annually, like doing a full rebalance. Okay. And even then you'd only really want to do it if your portfolio got really out of whack. Um, so I've been doing this for a few years now and I haven't had to do a single full rebalance yet. And the reason is because I'm making um, continuous cash contributions every month and I use that cash to buy the underweight assets. So you're making those decisions as you go. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, every, every time the calculation runs, it just looks at what my current holdings are compared to the portfolio and it converts each to a percentage. So I might end up having, so if stocks did really well one particular month, I might find that I have 77% of my assets in uh, stocks and only 23% in, uh, in bonds. And then the calculation would basically say you need to use that money to buy bonds up to a certain point. Okay. And is that part of passive or is that just a, a, a quick spreadsheet calculation you would do? Uh, that's a part of passive. So originally nice. that was a spreadsheet calculation that I was doing, but having to do it every time cash hit my account was kind of uh, pain, painful to do and, you know, and do it for every account at that. Um, Cause I'd have to be like looking up market quotes and copying and pasting them and then looking at my current holdings in my uh, quest rate account and comparing that to what the recommended assets were and all that sort of thing. Right. So, so that's one way to use passive if you're continuously, which I mean, a lot of people should be just investing on a regular basis for the concept of dollar cost averaging. It's kind of the default way to work with passive. Sure. Okay. Then, oh, great. Yeah. Like the quest rate has free buys of ETFs. And as long as you're, you know, continuously contributing um, for the most part, you know, you can just buy the underweight asset and you stay hundred percent aligned with your target in the long run. By default, passive tells you what the buy-only trades are. It will never recommend that you sell anything um, unless you turn off uh, that option. So it's not necessarily. I mean, I'm sure people who have like an amount that's just sitting there for for years, um, they could can they use passive? Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah. if you've got if you've got like a bunch of money just sitting there, um, you know, living with the market, and you're you know you're not really touching it very often, then you know you could just once a year look at your account. And run this, uh, you know, run it through passive, and it'll tell you what your basically it'll tell you what your your portfolio accuracy is. And you know, if you've fallen below, say, ninety five percent, maybe you'd consider doing a rebalance. And you know, you definitely don't want to do it too often because there's you know transaction costs with doing it. You're going to lose whatever the bid ask spread is on the assets you're buying and selling, and then there's also the per trade fees that you're going to pay on top of it. You don't want to do it too often. You want to only do it when your portfolio gets substantially out of whack. What's the importance of rebalancing? Risk mitigation. It's basically saying, well, you're going to diversify your portfolio and you diversify it according to a particular plan. So in my case, I say, well, half my assets are outside of Canada, half are inside Canada. And within my assets inside Canada, half of those are in bonds, half in stocks, right? Um, so that's kind of what I've set as my target. And if that gets out of whack, then my, uh, like the risk associated with my portfolio also gets a little, a little out of whack. Because you're taking a bit more risk in areas where you would not have liked to yeah, take so, risk. So because bonds, um, well, stocks will typically outperform bonds in the long run. If your money just sits around, then over time, your portfolio is probably going to become more heavily weighted towards stocks. Um, and then it's also risky. Like if you've got all your money in the stock market, that is you know, one of the riskier ways to invest your money. So it's about just kind of keeping your portfolio in line with the plan you originally created for it. And if you, you know, at some point you decide maybe you want to change that plan, you know, if you're getting close to retirement and you want to be a little more conservative with your money, okay, you can change your asset mix and then do a rebalance and bring yourself back into alignment with your new target. You know, that's, it's, it's kind of like a personal decision people need to make in accordance with their own uh, financial goals. So investing, it's not about uh, chasing the wins and, and the losses. It's about setting up a plan first, 
like whatever you can tolerate, like your risk. You're like, I'm good with, you know, 50% in Canada, 50% outside of Canada. I want my Canadian 50% to be split between stocks and bonds. I'm good with that. And I'm going to stick with it until maybe my life situation changes. I get older or, or, or things, but I'm not really caring uh, how everything is doing because I'm here to just maintain my risk, not uh, try to time things. Yeah, you've, you've put it perfectly. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. And that's the concept of passive investing and, and just, you know, not, it's the difference between investing and trading, I suppose. So this is what robo-advisors do, uh, you know, companies like uh, Wealthsimple or Nest Wealth, uh, and they do this for a fee. Why, why shouldn't people just go to the robo-advisors? Well, I, I, I would actually say that robo-advisors are not a bad option for most people. Hmm. Um, they, you know, they do their job well. They do it at a substantial fraction of the cost of a mutual fund. You know, like it's, it's not a horrible option to put your money into a robo-advisor um, compared with all the, <laughs> the bad things you could it's do true. with it if, yeah, yeah, if absolutely. Uh, you weren't. Um, so we look at passive as kind of like a, like a do-it-yourself robo-advisor. So if you put your money in with a robo-advisor, uh, most of them don't give you a lot of flexibility in terms of how your money is um, allocated or where it sits and that sort of thing. They'll basically ask you a series of questions to assess your risk tolerance, and then they will put you in a bucket with other people with a similar risk tolerance and allocate your money in that, you know, according to that plan. So in my experience, people have like different goals for investing. And sometimes there are goals that uh, conflict with each other. You know, I, I intend to retire, but maybe I don't, maybe I want to invest my money in a socially responsible manner. Um, and if I have that goal of being socially responsible with my money, I can't put it in any standard robo advisor because they just have, um, you know, kind of like these risk buckets and it has nothing to do with uh, any of the um, social aspects of how the money is invested or what the companies are doing, um, you know, in which the money is being invested. So with something like passive, you can basically construct your own portfolio as you see fit. You can include whatever you want and exclude whatever you don't want. And you can basically run it like a robo advisor on top of your own brokerage account. So you're not relying on this third party to do it for you. So I guess like the flexibility there is like kind of the big feature that I like about passive. Uh, but there's also the cost aspect. We, we're kind of like in the early stages of building our revenue model for passive. But at the moment, we're looking at doing a, uh, an annual fee, like a software subscription. Mm-hmm. And it's a fee that uh, doesn't change depending on how much money you're managing. So if you have your money with a robo-advisor, well, they charge you a management expense ratio that means you pay more as they manage more. When you only have maybe ten dollars or $20,000 in your retirement accounts, you won't be paying that much in fees. But if that grows to a substantial amount, like hundreds of thousands or millions, which is enough to retire on, then uh, you end up paying substantially for it. So with passive, it's like it doesn't really matter how much you manage, um, as long as you're above, you know, about a twenty thousand dollar threshold, it's the cheaper option, um, and it does all the same calculations the same way they do. I think for me, because I'm a value investor, I also, as Brendan said, want want flexibility. And um, with with robo advisors, you are locked into the the portfolios they offer. You know, I want to be able to invest in you know, put a bit of my money in Apple, but not necessarily count that towards my my total portfolio. And I don't want to have a separate Quest Trade account just to buy Apple. So I, I think that passive gives investors, do-it-yourself investors a choice. It, I think it democratizes it to some degree because there, there are tools out there that are designed for, you know, people who don't want to manage their money. But what about people who do? There, are, there aren't many tools out there um, and so I think that we, we offer that happy medium across the spectrum. 
Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about just uh, the basics of value investing and how and how you would uh, integrate this into a, a passive portfolio? I would do my own research on a company, let's say Apple. I'd look at their fundamentals, like their cash flow and you know their net book value. Essentially, I'm trying to find a, a company that has been undervalued in the market by doing some analysis. And so I'd, I'd buy that company and I'd hold it for a really long time. So actually, in my opinion, value investing and passive investing is the same in the sense that you, you buy the asset or the company and you hold it for a very long period of time. And so that's sort of where I see a complementary sort of philosophy in that regard. So it doesn't have to be, because when people think of passive investing, they think ETFs or index funds or things that are, are mimicking the markets. But you're saying that if you have some knowledge of the companies, if the intent isn't just to, you know, you know let's use Netflix in, as an example, just buy Netflix and, and just wait till it grows or doubles and then sell it when it does. If the idea is to just hold it just like you're doing everything else, then it fits into the passive investing model, but you have a little bit more of a diversity and and, uh, you're able to be a little more involved and uh, make your own decisions. Yeah, that's basically it. You you hit the nail on the head. And of course, you want to invest in long companies that you believe are going to be around for a long time. And so that's that's the only other catch too. And that's why it fits in because a company like let's say Apple or Microsoft, you'd, you'd presume that they'd be, they'd be around for, for over 10 years, right? So that's why I think it fits with, with that passive investing philosophy because most passive investors, they, they hold their money, I think, for, for a period of over five years, right? So in, in my opinion, makes a, bit, a bit, bit of sense there. You don't want to be buying anything that you would need to call somebody up at the brokerage and cash out in an urgent manner. You want something that's, you know, if if it's going to go down in value or change, you'll get some warning and then you'll be able to make some decisions. So passive is for people, basically, you want to have an interest in doing your own investing, first of all. Yes, it's very important, I think, to have an interest in doing your own investing because, you still have to decide on your own portfolio. Like we can't advise you on where to put your money. We're not advisors, so we can't tell you that. Same here. Yeah, you need you basically need to have enough interest to be able to figure out what you want to do with your money on like a low level scale. And then you have to have the interest to be able to keep up with it, right? So like anytime new cash hits your account, if you're with passive, you'll get a notification that says, hey, new cash hit your account. Um, you may be able to um, allocate this and it kind of gives you a prod to do that, but you still need to do it. Or to that point, again, dividends, right? If you're a dividend investor and you receive dividends every quarter, that person may want to reinvest those dividends into the companies that are paying them dividends. And so therefore, passive also fits that use case quite nicely for someone, again, trying to build wealth, except just through following, let's say, dividend investing portfolios or philosophies. So if you're you have a brokerage account at this point, just with Quest Trade, right? You guys are only integrated with them. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And it, it, would there be plans to expand it uh, to others? Do others have APIs, or is it just uh, Quest Trade that happens to be open? Other, some other brokerages have APIs. Not all of them, though. I don't think there's any other in Canada that have like a proper API that we can use um, the same way we use uh, Quest Trade's API. Um, there are a few in the U.S., um, so we're basically trying to develop relationships with those brokerages now to be able to do that. It's not like you could just build an application to talk to anybody's API, especially mm. with brokerages. They're usually kind of selective about who is actually allowed to access it. Um, so there's kind of like this relationship building has to happen before we can um, even enter those other markets or support other brokerages. Yeah. Sure, sure. And Quest Trade is, is uh, you know, if I were to 
do a roundup of brokerages, which I haven't, and I'm not planning to. But if I were, I know that they're a good option in Canada. I mean, the the other options are are basically the rest of the, the banks, and Quest Trade is actually removed from Canadian banks, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. They're independent. Mm-hmm. That in itself, I mean, uh, is a, a good reason to to choose. But also, so you you get your help from Passive uh, if you're going through Quest Trade. Maybe you're trying this yourself and you're like, this is so much work. You're like, oh, I want to go to a robo, but you, you're missing, you might miss the aspect of managing it yourself if that's the, the kind of investor you are. And that's where Passive comes in to kind of take away the, the, the tedious uh, tasks. Yep. And so we're, we're basically trying to build out Passive to try to reduce the amount of tedious things you need to do to um, manage your investments like a robo-advisor would. Um, so... For example, one of the features we're working on now, uh, we're calling it one-click trades. So this is going to be an optional feature for users who want to do it. But the idea is when you go into passive, it kind of looks at your current holdings in your account and does a calculation to see um, what trades would need to be made in order to bring you into a full alignment with your targets. And if any trades are are there, or let's say these are the trades that should be made, there's a little button that appears next to it that says uh, prepare these orders. And so you click that button, it goes to Quest Trade, it validates these orders to make sure that it's actually possible to make them and the markets are open and all that stuff. And then boom, you press the button and it just synchronizes your account. So this is something we have working in testing right now. And I've, I've been using it on my own account for probably three or four months now. We haven't released it yet because we're talking to regulators to make sure that we're not crossing any lines we don't want to be crossing. In my opinion, that's like the one last big thing that's uh, tedious for me in, in managing my investments is having to go and make the trades manually. But having this button will allow me to just kind of synchronize my account with my target uh, whenever I want. And a lot of products uh, that are made these days are made because someone has a problem. In this case, it was you. And you just built something to fix it. And then other people said, oh, I like that. Can I try it? You've already proven that it's useful. And that's important because if it's useful to you, then you're going to keep on making these adjustments to it. I think it's really important to use your own stuff. The term inside the industry would be like dog fooding, so like eating your own dog food. Okay. And if you don't do that, then you don't have a really deep understanding of your product or what problems it should be solving or you know what you should be doing to address these things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super important that both Brendan and I are passive investors and we use our accounts to manage our investments and you know, like that, that gives us a lot of insight. In fact, one of the uh, things that I got from uh, Brendan Lee here is that he has, uh, because he's a value investor, right? He has some of his money um, in ETFs that he wants to manage passively um, according to a target. And then he also has some stocks that he's kind of like picked due to his value investing. So he's kind of done the math on these and said, well, these look like really good uh, long-term companies that I can put my money in and be happy with for decades. So he'll buy them and that's fine, but he doesn't necessarily want these included in a balance calculation. So he'll have bought, you know, so many units of these stocks and then say, I'm cool with that, especially if it's like a relatively, uh, you know, low value relative to his overall portfolio. You don't really want to be balancing across that because it's just going to say, well, buy one unit this month and maybe sell one unit the next. Right. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and not really productive. So he proposed the idea of having some sort of like a, um, exclusion list where um, you can basically see the holdings in your account. And if there's anything that you don't want to be included in the balance calculation, just check it off and then you will never receive any recommendation to do anything with that particular holding. And that was, his, I was kind of skeptical of that idea at first, but we've actually had probably about a dozen users come forward and say, this is something I really want. Like, yes, I'm a passive investor, but I also have a few companies I believe in, in my portfolio. And I'd like to be able to um, use passive more seamlessly. To build on that, I think what we want to do is create a tool that's very flexible. So it can do 
it's like a Swiss army knife for do-it-yourself investors. And, and that's one of the, the key insights that we've seen is that even though you're a passive investor, some people treat their passive investments differently. And so um, we want to be flexible enough to support those diverse needs within you know, our, our product. Yeah, that's that's really smart. Now, just going back to what Brendan said, I mean, Brendan Brendan comes from a computer programming background, and he obviously did the research and you know determined that passive investing and doing it yourself was was good for him. Now, imagine someone like myself that that knows about this a bit more and believes in passive investing, but does not have that skill set to to create their own application to integrate with with Questrade. Where does that leave guys like myself? Mm-hmm. And maybe you, right? Um, surely on a Friday afternoon, I'm not looking forward to breaking open my Excel spreadsheet and spreadsheet and tab in in between websites just to calculate the trades I need. That's what I really think is neat about passive and that, you know, the, the good work that Brendan has done will be available to investors like us. We look forward to helping that community. Yeah, it's perfect. And uh, I think b- before uh, I talked to you guys, the idea was... If you don't know what you're doing, you go robo. If you really know what you're doing and you want to get into it, then you you do it yourself and go brokerage. And there's no real middle for anybody who's like, I don't want to spend all the do-it-yourself time and I don't want to pay the fees or have the limited options of the robo. So it seems like you guys are creating a new category here. That, that's kind of like we do look at it to that and like to that extent we don't we wouldn't normally come forward and say that because it makes it harder for people to like frame what we're doing but we do kind of see it fundamentally as like a new category it's like you you know you can implement your own robo advisor to be whatever you want on top of your own brokerage account it gives you full autonomy in how you manage your money and all the benefits of having a robo advisor that's kind of what we're aiming towards so people need to uh, basically have a Quest Trade account, and then they can just go. Where do they go to get passive? Is it uh, something they can add on themselves, or? Yeah, they they can find us on the Quest Trade app um, partner center in their app hub. Nice. So because we're a partner with Quest Trade, um, they can visit that page and find us, or they can they can go on our website at getpassive.com, and that's. G-E-T-P-A-S-S-I-V.com. So we, we dropped the E um, in passive. Don't oh. ask why. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I, I mean, uh, you wouldn't get good SEO otherwise. And uh, I'll include all these links in the show notes so uh, people will be able to click on them. Well, awesome, guys. Thanks for joining me today. You know, this is a, this is a very interesting a new way for people to get a little bit uh, more help and uh, to get into something that might be intimidating if that's what they want. It's, n- it's just nice to have a lot of different options for investing, and, uh, but the key is uh, just get started, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right, yeah. The earlier you start, the better. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thanks so much. Have a good one. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. It would mean a lot to me, and it only takes a few seconds. For the show notes and any links from the episode, head over to my website, investwisely.ca. And while you're there, please feel free to send me a message on my contact page. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. I'll be back next week with Shannon Lee Simmons, founder of the New School of Finance and author of the new book, Worry-Free Money.